Hi, this is Ron Friedman, author of Decoding Greatness, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Ron Friedman. Ron has served on the faculty of the University of Rochester, Nazareth College, and Hobart and William Smith Colleges, and has consulted for some of the world's most successful organizations. Popular accounts of his research have appeared on NPR and in major newspapers, including the New York Times, Financial Times, The Globe and Mail, Washington Post, and The Guardian, as well as numerous magazines such as Men's Health, Entrepreneur, and Success. He is a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review, Psychology Today, Fast Company, Forbes, and so many more. His first book, The Best Place to Work, was named as an Inc. Magazine Best Business Book of the Year. Ron lives in Pittsburgh, New York, and is here to talk about his book, Decoding Greatness, How the Best in the World Reverse Engineer Success. Welcome, Ron. Thanks so much, Bill. It's great to have you on. Tell me, Ron, when you were growing up, who's somebody who influenced or inspired you? This is uh, probably an unusual answer to give here, but one of the first books that really opened my eyes to the power of human motivation was written by Pat Riley, the then coach of the New York Knicks. I was a Nick Fanatic growing up in Brooklyn, New York. I read that book. It was called The Winner Within. And it was all about the behind the scenes machinations and, and how it is that he inspires players to perform at their best. I remember one of the fascinating insights in that book was that he would bring colored towels on visiting trips because he wanted the players to have some type of inspiration that reminded them of home, that they wouldn't feel like they were in a hotel. And that was just one of those interesting psychological insights that I think few coaches at the time, the way that he thought about getting people to perform at their very best through ways that were not obvious. Yeah, if you want people to do something different, you've got to create a different environment. That was a real simple, tangible way to do it that was uncommon. That really set the stage, I think, for a lot of the things that I do in my career, which is looking for those non-obvious channels for inspiring great work. Given that inspiration from Pat Riley, as well as I'm sure others, can you think of a time early in your career where you made a decision or a choice and it was influenced by thinking about the details, about the environment, and going beyond what you might have done ordinarily because of their inspiration? Actually, it's funny because you're going to get this impression of me as a real basketball fanatic, which is probably not very close to being the case. But one of the studies that I, I did in graduate school was looking to see the impact of seeing a Michael Jordan jersey on basketball performance, meaning that if a jersey of an outstanding player, would that elevate or lower your performance? Because you maybe you were too intimidated. You're never Michael Jordan. So we had brought people into the lab. We had this jersey on the wall for half the people. The other half did not have the jersey. We looked to see how that impacted performance. Turned out it had no effect. Now, that might not necessarily represent the entire scope of the influence of Michael Jordan's jersey. But I think there's just too much variability in people's performance level in basketball for us to capture an effect on a single experiment. Was the research done in Chicago, I wonder? No, it was done at the University of Rochester, which is where I studied. Interesting. I'm just thinking of things that would be priming and yeah. having it be in that city would also be a, another factor to make it easier to sure. think about how it impact. Certainly. When you think about decoding greatness, and I really enjoyed reading the book. I like the approach that you take to it. When you think about when you 
you started to write the book, what was the idea that gave Genesis to sharing the approach that you take in the book? So I've always been interested in what are the factors that lead people to perform at their best and how do we utilize the latest science to elevate our performance at work and in other domains in life. So when I set out to write this book, I was looking at how is it that ordinary people achieve great things? What I discovered in doing the research for Decoding Greatness is that there are basically two main stories that we've all been told throughout our lives about how that happens. The first story is that greatness or succeeding at a really high level comes from talent. This is the idea that you're born with a certain innate strength and your job, if you want to be great at something, is to find a field that allows that strength to shine. The second major story is that greatness comes from practice. This is the idea that if you just have the right practice regimen and if you have enough discipline to carry through with that practice regimen for years and sometimes decades at a time, then eventually you will be successful. What I discovered in doing the research for this book and looking at all of the biographies of top performers, but also exploring some of the latest science is that there is a third story for how people achieve greatness. It's one that is not often heard. This is not an idea that many people have talked about, but it is the path through which a remarkable number of entrepreneurs and artists and business leaders have emerged at the top of their field. That path is reverse engineering. And reverse engineering simply means finding great examples in your field and then working backward to figure out how they were created. So you can apply those learning to your next project in a creative way. Meaning we're not talking about duplicating someone else's work. We're just simply talking about unpacking how it is they achieved success in order to elevate our understanding of how we can succeed ourselves. That's an example that highlights the system of reverse engineering. The process is going to be different depending on your field. I'll give you just a few examples of how this appears in a sort of different industries. So artists, for example, will often, if you're a photographer, for let's say, you, you will look for clues hidden in an image that are not obvious to uh, novice uh, photographers. For example, you might look not at the object in the photo, but you'll look to see the reflection of the light source in the eye of the person who's in the image. Or you might look at the length of the shadows to tell you where, where the light source was placed in the t- or the time of day in which it was shot. If you're a nonfiction writer, what you'll often do is you'll go right to the bibliography at the end of the book to identify the sources that went into creating the work. If you are uh, a chef, you might order food to go and then place the a sauce underneath a, a magnifying glass to identify the ingredients that went into it. So it really depends on what field you're in, but an array, a large array of techniques that anyone can use to reverse engineer others' works and improve their skill level. I give the example in Decoding Greatness of how you can reverse engineer a TED Talk, and you can do this by doing something called reverse outlining. Reverse outlining is very similar to outlining, which is a tool that we've used when we were writing term papers in college, which is simply bullet pointing what you're going to write in your piece eventually. Reverse outlining is taking someone else's finished piece and then turning that finished work into an outline so you can see the structure and the pattern that went into creating it. One of the things I do in Decoding Greatness is I start off by showing you all of the different techniques that are being used across different industries. Then in later chapters, I show you how you can apply it to your field. I think that seeing what the structure is really helps people understand that there's a very deliberate path that people choose. I think mm-hmm. that the examples you shared just now help us understand that there are a variety of different approaches and there isn't just one way of getting there. You talk about in the book, one of the things that, that separates celebrity entrepreneurs like Jeff Bezos and Mark Cuban and Richard Branson isn't the novelty of their ideas, but it's viability, which hardly anyone talks about. Can you expand upon that insight? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I talk about in the book is that if you go to a, to a barbecue with friends, you talk about your new business idea, the reaction you'll get is, oh, that's, that sounds really creative or that doesn't really seem particularly new. Neither of those have any relevance for your success. What really matters is viability. 
And viability is something that entrepreneurs are really good at identifying. The other thing that they're really good at is recognizing patterns. I think a lot of us assume that entrepreneurs, if you're not an entrepreneur, if you are an entrepreneur, you're listening, by the way, to the right program. But a lot of people assume that entrepreneurs are super creative, they're incredibly disciplined, or they're very highly intelligent. All of those things can be true, but that's not what makes them successful. What makes them successful, this is research out of the Harvard Business School, is that they're really good at identifying what works in one field and how that idea can be applied in a new field. In Decoding Greatness, I give the example of what entrepreneurs do really well is finding those patterns. They can see a pattern in successful businesses like Chipotle and Starbucks. Both of those companies sell very different things, but they are both grounded on the same idea, which is find something that's working somewhere else and import it into your hometown. I thought that was really interesting that David Ells was in San Francisco at the time and just saw all these Mexican restaurants popping up. And he suddenly thought about it, not to compete in San Francisco, but he took it to Denver. That was an insight that he gained that I didn't realize when I read it. That's exactly right. So what that approach teaches us is that your job isn't necessarily to come up with a million new ideas, but rather to figure out what's working somewhere else and identify ways of either importing it to your hometown or conversely, take an idea that is working already in your hometown and export it somewhere else. Once you have that underlying pattern, all of a sudden it becomes really easy to come up with lots of great business ideas. It's not by trying to be as creative as you possibly can, but rather identify the underlying pattern that is driving a successful business and apply it in a new way. This can take place in ways that are really surprising. For instance, I read about in your book about the greatest bank robber of all time, George Leonidas Leslie. He was someone who was at large in the 1870s, and he used this process of reverse engineering in a way that had never been done before. Can you share what's known now about how he used what we call today customer shopping to rob banks? (laughs) Yeah, this is one of my favorite stories in the book. So this is a guy who was a former architect and really presented himself as such going into banks and start starting up new accounts. When you opened up a bank account back then, they would take you into the inner chamber of the bank. So once he gets there, he starts taking on this air of, I'm an accomplished architect. I'm working for another company. I'm so interested in what you guys are doing here. Would you mind if I took a look around? And as he's doing this, he is taking a mental snapshot of all of the particulars of the bank, including the make and model of the safe. And he gets back home and he draws up the architectural plan for the bank. He recreates it for him and his crew inside an abandoned warehouse. Then he proceeds time his crew emptying out the bank. So they're practicing on a replica of the bank. And when they get to the actual bank robbery, they do so in a way that is just shocking for the authorities because they find no evidence the safe was even broken into. Part of that is because what since he knew the make and model of the safe, he would purchase one for himself, practice breaking into it, and had no use for explosives by the time he got there. Yeah. That illustrates so many important aspects of reverse engineering with the rehearsal, with understanding what the system is, giving your team metrics in order to, to fully carry out what the process is that you're using it for. Before we get more deeply into one of those, let me also just touch on another area that was surprising that how all the patterns came into place. But once you revealed it in the book, it was just fascinating. It was how Tinder uses algorithms to be able to find out ways of what people are interested in as a mate, what makes them compatible. And in an area where people think that it should only be revolving around chemistry, they've been extraordinarily successful. Can you talk about how they've taken something that people expect to be in one domain of just human chemistry and bring it into the domain of large scale? Yeah. So one of the reasons I brought that story in of Tinder and how 
Tinder works is because there's a lot that we can learn from how algorithms find patterns. And here's how they do show this in the example of Tinder is how Tinder succeeds is by presenting you with a number of potential mates and asking you to swipe right if you find them attractive and swipe left if you don't. And after it has that initial number of people you do find attractive, breaking it down and looking for patterns, some of those patterns that it may find are non-obvious and may not even be conscious to you. So you might think you're looking for an attractive mate, but what Tinder finds is that the five people you've selected in the first five that you've chosen, they all happen to be extroverted or they all spicy foods that might be indicative in their profile. You may not be conscious of that being an attractive factor for you, but this algorithm is able to key in on that. It does that by looking at the examples that you selected and the ones that you've really responded to. So by looking for patterns in the examples that you've really liked, it can then predict who else you're going to find attractive. There's a lesson here for all of us if we want to be, get good at finding hidden patterns, that is to first and foremost become a collector of the objects that you consider outstanding in your field. So this goes obviously well beyond simply finding mates. If you're someone who is interested in creating a website that is really powerful, start by collecting examples of websites that you've responded to in the past. What that does is it gives you a collection that you can then visit when you're looking for inspiration, but also one that allows you to study the patterns of what it is that makes successful websites unique. When you compare what's the objects in your collection versus the objects that didn't make your collection, you can't help but identify the key factors that go into creating an extraordinary website. It's all about comparing what's in your collection against what's not. I relay this in the book as spot the difference. It's just like the game that we used to play as kids when you're comparing two images side by side looking for what's different. That's what you're looking to do here. And like Tinder, you're going to very effectively figure out the underlying patterns of what makes powerful works resonant. Thinking about how managers are leading teams now remotely, what are some of the ways that you've helped companies recognize how to decode that and maybe help them become better performing by looking at what works and applying that consciously rather than just accidental? My first book is called The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace. In that book, I took over a thousand academic studies, synthesized them, and translated them into plain English so that regardless if you're a CEO or just someone starting out, you have access to the best research on what it is that leads people to perform at a high level and how to use that to create a high-performing team. Part of the research that I now do with companies is identifying all the different ways that they can elevate their team's performance. We have a lot of workshops on this. And in a recent study that I just did that's going to be published for the Harvard Business Review, we looked at what high-performing teams do differently, particularly in the pandemic. We were curious about those teams that really performed at an extraordinary high level and what is it that they did differently. What we found in doing this research is that relatedness or connectedness, feeling connected to the people on your team, it was at the center of what drove high-performing teams. Specifically, we found that people who belong to high-performing teams reported not just communicating with their colleagues over email or over Slack, they pick up the phone and talk to one another 60% more often average teams. Part of the reason for I think that works, people have this assumption that if you pick up the phone and call a colleague, it's going to be awkward or uncomfortable. But what research tells us is that phone calls actually, in reality, are not particularly uncomfortable. On the contrary, they tend to build stronger relationships and prevent misunderstandings, and that leads to higher performance. The other two findings I'll just mention quickly, one, people on high-performing teams tend to be more authentic. You won't surprise you to know that they tend to express more positive emotions. In other words, they joke, they use exclamation points more often in their emails, they include emojis and GIFs. But what might surprise you is that they also express negative emotions more often. They tend to curse more and sarcasm and even complain. So why 
why would expressing negative emotion lead to higher performing teams? It's because the the alternative to expressing negative emotion is suppressing negative emotion and suppression cognitively expensive. It means you're wasting mental energy, not focused on your work, but controlling your emotions. What it is representative of is that when you're part of a safe environment, when you feel embraced by the people around you, you feel like it's okay to express negative emotions. So it's not that the negative emotions are driving higher performance. It's that the ability to express negative emotion is indicative of a high performing team. It's more of a lagging indicator than a leading indicator. That's exactly right. The, the final point is that when we found in comparing the high performing teams against average teams is that high performing teams are both receiving and expressing appreciation more often. And it's not just the managers who are appreciating them, they're appreciating their colleagues. What that tells us is that among high performing teams, there's a culture of expressing appreciation to one another. It doesn't simply go from the top down. And that's one of the keys to creating a high performing team. The key takeaway for me looking to build connectedness within your team, which is of course a leading indicator of creating a high performing team, investing in a very expensive offsite is probably not the answer. Far better to incorporate some of these everyday behaviors like expressing appreciation, bringing your full self to work and picking up the phone and having genuine conversation. That's terrific. I think that some of these are very easy to do and some of them are new skills. What's been your experience as you talk with leaders who are looking to bring these into their workplace about how to develop these skills and support people to share the feedback and to share appreciation in ways that really matter rather than do it in ways that feel awkward and then they retreat from the behavior because they don't feel like they're making success. It's interesting. I think this is one of the big challenges that I think people have an appreciation that psychological needs are helpful for creating high performing teams. Of course, just to for those who aren't familiar, the, the three key psychological needs that drive high performing teams are competence, meaning like you're feeling like you're growing at work, you're building your skills, relatedness, feeling connected, appreciated, valued, all the good things that happen, close personal relationships. And then finally, autonomy, feeling like you have some say in how you go about doing your job. I think that there is an appreciation that psychological needs can help build high performing teams where I think that there is a barrier is people don't know what do I need to do as a leader to create a high performing culture. One of the workshops that we've been developing within my company is helping leaders build high performing teams by teaching them nine key skills that enable them to fulfill people's psychological needs. But it's not just the leaders. It doesn't just happen top down. This is one of the things that we talked about in that previous study where it's happening from colleague to colleague. So we're also developing a program called Teaming for Peak Performance, which is all about helping colleagues fuel one another's psychological needs through very simple techniques. It's something that people can be proactive about, learn about themselves and start to work on it and to be more expressive with their colleagues at work and their partners and consultants outside of work. It's also something where people who are working as solo entrepreneurs can do and to use reverse engineering and to use these other skills to be a high performer. I was interested to read in your book about a, a mutual friend of ours, Malcolm Gladwell. What do you would you say is the secret to Malcolm Gladwell's success as a writer, not a recreational runner, but as a writer? I think that it, what's really interesting for me about the story of Malcolm Gladwell, obviously there are techniques all nonfiction writers aim emulate because Gladwell has been so successful in his writing. Part of that, I think, is recognizable to many of the listeners where if you've picked up a nonfiction book in the last 20 years, you will recognize the structure where there is a story, then there is an academic study, then they go back to the story, back to the study, and then some kind of actionable takeaway, hopefully, at the end. That's the pattern. But what I think is so fascinating about the Gladwell story is that he didn't set out to create this new approach to writing. He was compensating for what he perceived as a lack of ability in executing 
for The New Yorker. He had served as a science writer for The Washington Post for some years, and then he gets hired by The New Yorker. All of a sudden, he's got to write these monster pieces that are 10,000 words long, and he just doesn't feel like he can carry it out in the form of a narrative. He just didn't trust his writing. Begins to compensate by interweaving academic studies into a narrative. That, of course, becomes the Gladwellian style, but the point of it is that he didn't set, did not set out to be an original. He simply had to do so by trying to adapt to what he perceived as the New Yorker's underlying pattern, couldn't execute, and so tried to compensate and came up with something entirely new. Often, that is the key to coming up with creative work that is successful, is find the hidden pattern within your field. Then once you understand the pattern, then you can start to evolve it. But if you're just aiming to, to starting from scratch and trying to create something entirely new, chances are you are going to fail. I think Gladwell's story illustrates that. It's figure out what the pattern is first and then evolve it ever so slightly to come up with something original. It's the other side of it. It's being able to evolve the story, notice what's working, and it's not necessarily pursuing something for novelty's sake. And it's not pursuing something strictly as a copycat because copycats, they could look and understand the structure through reverse engineering, but looking to exactly copy what someone else is doing never leads to success. What are your observations and insights around that area of either people who pursue that or looking to defend against others? Is that a necessarily useful expenditure of energy? And what ends up happening for a lot of people who identify a winning pattern and trying to replicate it is that they're often too late to the game to actually capitalize on it. I give the example in the book of the story of Twilight. And this was about 15 or 20 years ago. Twilight comes out. It's a story of a teenager falling in love with a vampire. All of a sudden, the market is swarmed with stories of teenagers falling in love with vampires. And none of them achieve even a fraction of Twilight. And it wasn't because they were all terrible books. It was because audience expectations had shifted. By now, the idea of a teenager falling in love with a vampire was no longer fresh. But what did succeed is years later, there's Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. So now, you took the idea of vampires and you added on top of it American history and that became interesting. Similarly, there's the example of Lin-Manuel Miranda. If you think about what it is that makes Lin-Manuel Miranda successful, it's not trying to create something entirely new. He's taking the successful Broadway formula and adding on top of that salsa and rap. So he comes up with In the Heights, in I think it was 10 or 15 years ago. Then he adds American history to it in the form of Hamilton. That's the breakout success. So it's not about something coming completely out of left field. He didn't completely abandon the Broadway formula for a successful musical. He just built on top of it. Again, it's about finding a winning pattern and then evolving it slightly. There's rigor to this. There are metrics to this. Can you talk about the scoreboard principle and why that's important when you're doing this, either for yourself as a, a thought leader or entrepreneur, or you're leading a team? Why are the metrics so important? The scoreboard principle leads off the second half of the coding greatness. The first half of the book is all about reverse engineering, how people are doing it throughout different fields, how you can use it and how you can use it to evolve your formula and create something new. The second half of the coding greatness is about shrinking the between your vision, in other words, the ideals you have and what you're trying to execute, and your current ability. And chances are, if you're like most people, you're not going to be great right out of the gate. So the question is, how do you get good really quickly using the science of skill acquisition? The answer to that question starts off with this chapter on the scoreboard principle. And the scoreboard principle simply states that if you want to get better at anything, the fastest way to get there is to monitor some key metrics that help you figure out whether or not you're improving. And there's a of evidence pointing to the impact, the psychological impact of numbers and why we're so transfixed by them. There's an evolutionary argument for why we care so much about numbers, and it's because it helped keep us alive in the past. If you were not able to detect the size of a group that you encountered in the savannah, 
Savannah, you didn't know whether to ally with them or to run away. You didn't have that information. That was crucial information for keeping you alive. There are physiologists who argue that there's a specific part of the brain that actually is in charge of focusing on numbers. And the fact that we're so transfixed with numbers is both a blessing and a curse. It's a curse in that app developers have keyed in on this. This is why people obsess over things like the number of likes they get or how many people retweeted their latest observation on how many followers you have on LinkedIn. We obsess about these numbers because they're numbers and we can't help but pay careful attention to those types of metrics. It's a blessing in that if you can identify and create your own metrics and make that your focus, you're likely to improve on anything that you measure. So I talk in the book about how if you want to lose weight, keep track of your calorie intake. If you want to drink more water, keep track of the number of ounces that you consume every day. If you want to increase your focus, keep track of your uninterrupted minutes over the course of the workday. Anything that you measure, you are likely to improve on. That's a really powerful tool for improving your skills. One of the other examples that jumped at at me is doing this in professional sports or an arena where we do measure things and we're looking for meaningful measurements and gains the way that improvements are made and also to analyze where weaknesses might be. I love the section that you talked about with Roger Federer and how he and his team during his recuperation in 2016 helped him understand some of these areas that led to phenomenal success in 2017 and beyond. Can you share some of that? We could just go into that story to illustrate how important it is to look at certain key metrics in becoming able to raise your game. Yeah. So Federer's story is one of my favorite too, is this is a guy who's getting on in years. He gets injured of all things, giving his kids a bath and is out of tennis for some time. And and in the process of healing his team, he look at some of the key metrics and figure out why is he not winning anymore? What they discover is that he's got a fatal flaw and that is his backhand. Analysis allows them to identify some specific improvements that he can make. He comes back to tennis. He starts hitting the ball sooner. He's hitting the ball flatter, giving his opponent less time to respond, among a few other adjustments. But his game is transformed and he gets back on top. He wins the Australian Open. What that story illustrates is the power of having key metrics over the course of how your performance at work is taking place. Most of us, unfortunately, don't have those metrics. Athletes have a ton of metrics. If you're like most people, you have no metrics. So if you ask the average worker, how are your emails compared to last year? Or how are your presentations compared to last year? They have no idea. They just have no idea. What could be done for someone who wants to have metrics and there aren't any? The first step is to really reverse engineer the perfect day for yourself or the perfect execution for yourself and work backwards. So if I asked you, for example, Bill, what does the perfect day look like to you? What three things will you have achieved? I can answer that question for you. For for me, the ideal workday is a day in which I have had an opportunity to learn something new, to be a little bit creative, and to exercise. If I can check off those three boxes, I've had a good day. Knowing that enables me to slot specific activities on my calendar that will lead to a more satisfying day. And a satisfying day is not just like a narcissistic exercise, because if you're going home not feeling like you've had a good day at work, that's going to impact on your performance. It's going to impact on your creativity. It's going to lead you to be burnt out. Working backward, reverse engineering your perfect day allows you to develop some specific metrics. So in my case, it could be how many minutes did I spend reading academic journals? How many minutes did I spend going to the gym or doing some level of cardio? How many minutes did I spend developing something creative and having those key metrics in mind now 
leads me to make better decisions and be more mindful about how I'm spending my time at work. Because you're creating a feedback loop that becomes self-reinforcing and you could see where you made decisions that led to a decrease in areas that you want to improve. Exactly right. One of my favorite tools for this, and I I mentioned this in the book, is having a five-year journal. And how these work, if you've never heard of a five-year journal, you could find these on Amazon or any bookstore. A five-year journal is a diary, essentially, that has five slots and for every day of the year. And the idea is you just write a few lines about something that you did, what you did on that day or what you learned on that day. You do this for every day of the year and you come back one year later and you go to the second slot to identify what it is that you did or learned on that day. Then input your entry. You can see what you wrote on that exact day one year before. That process of being reminded of your progress, of the challenges that you've overcome, of just basic everyday events and strengthening your memory for them, that leads both to greater self-awareness, greater memory, and just wiser decisions. There are so many different insights that I've gotten from this exercise. I would just encourage everyone to get a five-year journal, start working on this, because you will be a smarter, wiser person for it. The great idea that I read in your book, and this is something that Marshall Goldsmith really expounds upon in his coaching consulting work. He encourages people to think about your ideal day and then give a metric to how closely you followed your plan. It's just a simple feedback loop that so few people do, yet those that are at the top of their game do take the trouble to do this. This is something else that I'm sure you've uncovered talking with many people who are at the top of their game, isn't it? It's funny because Marshall, I, I talk about Marshall in the book. One of the one of the metrics that he uses is that I do or say something for Lita. Lita is his wife. Now, it's funny. I don't know how many people would think about creating a metric for saying something nice to their wife, but it's just a great example of keying in on what makes for a good, successful marriage and then turning that into a metric. So there's some real power here because you can do this for anything. I'm a researcher. I believe you can turn anything into a metric. If you can key in on the right metrics for you, you will elevate your performance because now you're more mindful of the decisions that you're making. Great point. Ron, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best Light round. Let's do it. All right. At the beginning of the interview, I asked you about someone who had influenced or inspired you. When you were a teenager, Ron, what's a song that you loved? I'm going to answer this in a, in a funny way because I would say Smells Like Teen Spirit. I think I was one of the first to discover Nirvana, at least in my school. Now I hate Nirvana. And I'll tell you why. My 14-year-old daughter blasts it in our house. Smells Like Teen Spirit really causing me to, to reconsider my teenage years a- entirely. I get that. I do. What's the best advice you ever received directly, where somebody said, this is what you should do in order to improve. I've been reflecting on this for at least recently. Uh, a friend of mine, not a friend of mine, a, a professor of mine in, in college once said to me something that I think is just so wise. And the older I get, the wiser this statement becomes. And that statement was, just remember, at the top of every totem pole is the bottom of another totem pole. That seemed a depressing thing to think about when I was younger, but it is just so true that even if you're successful at the thing you're hoping to be successful at, there's going to be another level that you need to get to constantly. If you can embrace that idea, and I think that mindset, then I think it gives you a level of patience because you don't have to rush to get to the top of the totem pole because it's just going to be another totem pole when you get there. Plus, it reminds you that it doesn't happen all in one step, that it's an evolution that you can choose to pursue. If you're not enjoying the process of getting better, then I don't know that you're ever going to be satisfied pursuing that particular goal. What is your definition of success? Personally, I feel like I'm being successful when I'm translating research into practical, actionable steps for others. When I feel like I'm producing value and giving people some proven, valuable 
strategies that they can actually apply where it's no longer theoretical. It's something that they can actually put to use. That's where I feel like I'm delivering my highest value. When you work with organizations, what is something that you can observe that lets that they have the potential to be a high-performing organization within that group? I think every organization has the opportunity for becoming a high-performing team. I think what it comes down to is just knowing how to do it. What often I think leads companies astray is that the culture that made them successful in the first place is no longer serving them. It's interesting because every organization that I've ever worked with has taken on the personality of the founder. And sometimes that's great. And sometimes that's not so great. So the key is to figure out are other behaviors that we've, are they currently serving us? And if not, what can we be doing better? If you think about in the last year or so, what's the most important habit, skill, or belief that you've stopped that's led to your most pleasure or personal satisfaction? Stopped. Interesting. I, I often think in terms of positives. So it's a little tricky for me to think in terms of negative. Stopped. It, the answer is stopped trying to cram more into every day and going to bed earlier. One of these insights that falls under the category of obvious, but sometimes you need to live it in order to appreciate it. That is that if you want to get a good eight hours of sleep, you need to give yourself a nine hour runway to achieve the eight hours because you can't just, it's not like turning off a computer where you just, as soon as you get to bed, you fall asleep. You need to give yourself a runway. What is your blueprint today for success going forward? Well, you talk, I, I, I think, about the importance of a blueprint, so I'm sure you've got one for yourself. It's interesting. I, I'm about to start my third book, and I come to appreciate that readers really like actionable tips they really like great stories, but they also need to have a way to consume the information in a shorter amount of time. I think people's attention spans are shrinking, but that also creates an opportunity for authors. In other words, no, you can't continue to do what you've done in the past, but if you can find new techniques for getting people the information they need quicker, I think you will be successful. So I'm interested in exploring new ways of doing that. What's something that excites you a great deal about your work today? I'm excited to, now that the pandemic is receding, to be able to bring it into organizations more frequently. And that's been a challenge, I think, for a lot of folks in my field. I think that there's a real craving for in-person activities and in-person interaction. I'm looking forward to doing more. Ron, you have been so generous with sharing with me today and everyone listening, practical, applicable strategies and techniques for decoding the greatness that we see around us and thinking about it in unique and valuable ways. I want to thank you so much for starting off and sharing with me about the different ideas of being able to think about not only talent and practice that leads to greatness, but also reverse engineering, where we talked about being able to look at Chipotle as an organization where the, that leader was being able to, where David Fells was able to take what he saw as a trend in San Francisco and bring it to a new town. He had no idea or no intention of wanting to create a franchise. He was just looking for a way to pay the bills. And it really led to greatness in that. We talked about the example of with bank practice of being able to reverse engineer the safes in being a, a successful bank robber because it happens in so many different arenas that it's just widely applicable in order to look at this in so many different ways. So for these and so many more reasons, Ron, I want to thank you for joining me. Truly my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Ron, before we say goodbye for now, where can we find out more about you and your work online? In terms of learning about Decoding Greatness, the best place to go is decodinggreatnessbook.com. The reason I mentioned that website is because if you purchase the book and you send us your receipt, we will send you a free course on how to reverse engineer in your field. And it's entirely free. All you need to do is put copy, purchase the book in any uh, place that you send us your receipt and we will send you the course. Ron, we're going to link 
to decodinggreatnessthebook.com, as well as your other business website, ignite80.com, as well as your social media, as well as all places where people could buy the book. And then simply by sending you the receipt, you'll send them back a valuable gift. And we'll do that in the show notes so that anyone listening to this can go there and get access to all of the great resources that you offer. So Ron Friedman, once again, Ron Friedman, author of Decoding Greatness, How the Best in the World Reverse Engineer Success. I want to thank you once again for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Thanks so much, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review My Quest for the Best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on my quest for the best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.